Hello everyone, Kieran Howells here, the host of the HR Grapevine podcast, which of course you are listening to currently. It's going to be a fantastic episode this week. We're talking to both Jackie Summons and Gethin Naden, and we are getting into the subject of financial well-being, what it looks like in 2024 and beyond. So do stick with us for an incredible conversation. So I'm Jackie Summons. In my working life, I combine two roles, really. I'm an executive with Emis Health, so I'm the chief people officer at Emis Health. I'm a non-exec director for Zealous and also a non-exec director for a voluntary organisation as well. Hi, my name is Gethin Aden. I'm chief innovation officer at Benefex and also chief innovation officer at Zealous. I'm also a psychologist and a HR author. And in 2023 was UK's Mental Health Campaign of the Year and HR's Most Influential Thinker. So hopefully know a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. Fantastic. Yeah, you're both incredibly well placed to uh, to get into this conversation. And obviously we are talking today about the prospect of financial well-being, where we are with it now, where it's heading, and maybe some good insight for HR leaders on how they can move the dial in a positive way. So to kick us off with the conversation, well-being is a really quite complex term. It's, it's multifaceted. So I'm wondering from both of you, when we talk about financial well-being, what does that really mean? Yeah, so I think um, you're absolutely right. I think when you look at workplace well-being and well-being more generally, you know, it encapsulates a huge amount. It's kind of, you know, into people's safety, not just like their health. It's how they feel about society. It's how they contribute to society. It's all these very, very broad things. And I think when you get into the workplace, that can get even more complex because you're talking about things like recognition and autonomy and having a voice. Um, and I think the same is with financial well-being, that, you know, more broadly outside of the workplace, in the workplace, I, I think it is slightly different. Um, when we have started doing financial well-being consultancy sessions with our customers since just before the pandemic, so kind of four or four years or so now, we really got to a point where in order to help our customers best, we sought to kind of define this a little bit more. And so we looked at what we called common customer objectives. And so this was what most customers wanted to get out of supporting financial well-being in the workplace. And then what the employee outcomes. So what did we have to actually do to support employees so that the employees get the outcome they want, which is stronger resilience, to, um, uh, money resilience, financial resilience, and the employers get what they wanted as well, which is meaning that financial well-being isn't affecting somebody's life so much that it's affecting their work or their presenteeism or their um, just being available at work. And we boiled those down to four common customer objectives. And that was, uh, number one, financial security. So helping employees to manage debt effectively with minimal impact on their overall well-being. So this is making sure that people's financial situation isn't getting so bad that they're being overwhelmed by it and that's affecting their overall health. The second was financial control. And so that was making sure that employees have full awareness of spending and saving and they're set in pursuing long-term goals. The third one was financial confidence, knowing that employees had improved knowledge of money matters and increased financial literacy. And then the fourth was financial resilience. So making sure that employees were able to make their everyday expenses and they're also able to take a knock as they kind of build future protection. 
And that really encompasses a lot of what we see in employee benefit schemes. So things like pensions, you know, lots of long-term savings vehicles, but also lots of protection. So lots of insurance products that, you know, kick in should you lose your job or go on long-term ill health and, and that kind of protects your financial future. And so for us, it was really about how do you kind of bring those four things together, security, control, confidence, and resilience to create a, a better financial situation and ultimately better well-being for employees in the workplace. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Jackie, I, I wonder whether you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I, th I think it's it's incredibly helpful to be able to, to define it in that way. And those sort of four pillars are, are, are really useful because I think there is a tendency within businesses to think about financial well-being relating to certain groups. So I think there is a, sometimes a feeling that you know, if if people are lower paid, then actually a lot of the effort of, a, of an organisation needs to be um, placed there because that's where the most concern might be around financial well-being. And I think absolutely that that could be the case because there could be areas there where there isn't financial resilience and there isn't financial control and, and confidence, as, as Gethin has described. But I think that's a, probably a slightly false assumption because I've I've definitely in my career come across situations where people are very well paid, but for whatever reason have found themselves in some some really difficult spots um, financially. And actually, maybe the the piece that the Gethin touched on around how you are impacted each day at work it should perhaps be the focus of, of businesses and HR functions rather than trying to sort of be, be drifting towards particular employee groups, which I think I've seen, I, I do see a little bit of that. And I, I find that sometimes when you're having conversations with, with quite senior decision makers in a business, there is a tendency to immediately default to, okay, all right, so you're talking about us supporting our lower paid employees and what we need to do there. It's like, not necessarily. I'm talking about supporting the well-being of, um, of anybody who's, who's having difficulty to the extent that it's really impacting their day-to-day -day living and their day-to-day -day work. And that literally can be for a whole load of reasons. I think by by defining it in those in those different ways, it probably makes an organisation really think more clearly about okay, so if it's financial confidence that I'm trying to build, you know, what do I need to do? If it's financial resilience, what do I need to do? So, I think they're really super helpful um, to just, I guess, I'm I'm saying don't don't narrow that conversation too much. Yeah, I think back to that. I think that's a really important point that Jack has made. I think. There are obvious groups in the workplace where they are their financial resilience tends to be worse than others because of the way they're placed in society and the pressures that they face. But this does affect everybody. And I think it's important um, to kind of um, put a stamp on that point that Jackie's just made that actually it doesn't really matter how much you're earning. It doesn't matter how high up you are in a business. You will have financial well-being and that financial well-being will cause you stress and sleepless nights and will harm your well-being. And it's really interesting. There was some very fascinating research um, produced by uh, the, the magazine The Lawyer a couple of years ago, and they looked at the financial well-being of those people working in law firms earning kind of £200,000 plus a year. 
and compared that to some of the people working in law firms and some of the admin type roles that were earning earning kind of less than you know 30 40,000 pounds a year and what they found is you're more likely or just as likely to be stressed about your money if you're earning over 100,000 pounds a year than if you're earning less than 10,000 pounds a year and what they found was the things that are stressing you out are very different but they're still causing you stress and so you know as soon as you start earning over 100,000 pounds in the UK you start having to do things like self assessment tax um, obviously, all these different taxes kick in, and it, it gets really complicated. And for lots of people, earning a lot of money can really stress them out. So, although that's a nice problem to have, to to have to better understand a lot of these things, you know, the, the stress is still the same. It's still affecting people's work. It's still overwhelming them. And I think that's really important to point because I, I think, as Jackie says, you know, we tend to think financially stressed people have a certain profile, and it's just not true. And obviously, one of the things that has affected everyone at the moment is the cost of living crisis, which, you know, seems to be carrying on indefinitely. It's, it's something that is a kind of a perennial concern for, for many employees. So what do you both think are the keys to kind of easing the concerns of the workforce and getting that communication right? I think the first thing for us to understand about the cost of living crisis is that the damage it's caused will be with us for some time. If you look at the the impact um, in the UK and on UK employees, it's been so substantial that it's actually had a bigger financial impact on people in the UK than the pandemic did. The data tells us that the squeeze on finances that most people have experienced in the last couple of years has actually led to some really serious well-being issues as well. So I think we can start to see, because of the cost of living crisis, how well-being is actually getting worse. Um, I mean, the data tells us that there's um, the squeeze on finances we've experienced in the UK has led to a higher proportion of people dying before their time. So the number of people who are dying before the age of 75 will increase by about 7% as a direct result of the cost of living crisis. And around two thirds, I think, of under 24 year olds told the Prince's Trust that they had to lower their career expectations because of the cost of living crisis. Some of the most deprived parts of the UK are seeing something like 70 more annual premature deaths per 100,000 people due to the cost of living crisis alone. So it's really serious, and it isn't just about money. It's about huge changes in people's living standards. And so when we talk about employee financial well-being, when we talk about the cost of living crisis, we are actually supporting physical well-being, emotional well-being, and social well-being too. And I think that financial well-being is a really core part of overall well-being. Um, and so if we aren't supporting our employees' financial well-being in 2024, I actually don't think we're supporting their well-being at all. And so I think when we really think about financial well-being in that context and, and, and pay attention to that kind of data, we start to understand that actually the cost of living crisis should be of great concern still in 2024 to every employer. Um, and we really should focus on how do we kind of stop that? How do we kind of reduce that impact? Or how do we help people get through a period of recovery and with all the customers that i deal with you know there's kind of four or five things that we're really kind of pushing forward to customers the first one is that these rising costs will still be a threat to employee health so we're encouraging every employer to prioritize money in the well-being strategy and i guess the good news is if you're an employer listening to this podcast then you're, you're already on that journey or you're paying attention to this kind of stuff but we know things like Brits aren't eating as healthily because of the crisis. About 20% say they've cut down on regular exercise or cancelled gym memberships because they're trying to save money. And so people are actually starting to see an ever-well-being impact long-term. Benefits and the Zealous Group have got a pretty active employee discounts and cashback platform. 
And we're seeing a huge number, a huge big tick up in, in employers taking that from us and buying that. And I actually think budget shopping is going to be a long-lasting legacy of the crisis. And there's quite a few reports from people like Deloitte and McKinsey that back this up. Shoppers have moved away from kind of mid-market brands to more budget-friendly options. And the expectation is that's going to become a permanent trend. You know, we could start to see that people actually who had to change the way they shop are going to completely change that behavior. And so getting employees the ability to put more money in their pocket by saving money, I think is something that employers can do really, really easily. The other thing I think is that we must start to encourage employees wherever possible to stop taking risky decisions with their money and putting better choices before um, our people. So things like buy now, pay later schemes. You know, one of the big providers in the UK is Klarna. They saw 1 million new British users added in 2023. So despite huge consumer warnings, lots of consumer experts warning against these buy now, pay later schemes, they added 1 million new British users in 2023. And, and those types of products have some risks associated with them. We also see that something like 10% of insurance customers say that they've stripped back their cover as a result of the crisis and as a way of um, saving money. And, and almost 50% have cancelled some kind of insurance cover completely. And so I think we need to get better at, again, educating people the risks of some of the things like the buy now, pay later schemes and you know, nefarious lending that's available and maybe offer some more sort of suitable alternatives. So there's some really good providers in the UK that can do payroll lending to get people access to affordable credit and avoid them going down more kind of unsuitable and maybe unstable routes. And then the last one, I think, which is a fairly big one, is that employees will continue to need help and maybe need some more help with um, housing costs. So we've had you know UK consumers experiencing record levels of worry as something like 81% of renters and 80% of mortgage holders are concerned about escalating prices even into 2024. And while house prices in the UK are slowing, rent is increasing. And the UK annual private rent growth is about 5.76% in just the last 12 months. So it's higher than it's ever been for a decade. And so with you know broadly half the workforce at least renting, that changes depending on the demographics of your, your um, employee base. You know, helping employees to get deposits together, helping those renters to be able to pay their rent on time. You know, there's some great providers that can help people, you know, by paying your rent, you can actually get better credit scores. And there's companies that will link those two things up. And, and then for those who've got mortgages, encouraging them to switch mortgages. You know, we're about to enter a really competitive mortgage market in the UK. And most employees, again, do not understand their options, don't understand how mortgages work. So there are some switching options we can put in front of employees that can actually help them make better decisions that will protect them from a, a, um, a worse financial position later this year or put more money in their pocket and, and free up some of that money. And obviously, the more we do that, the more that we help employees to, to live more fulfilled lives, the better they are for us, the more they produce, the more they sell, the greater the invention and all that great stuff. One of the keys here is obviously financial education, financial literacy for the workforce. You've raised some fantastic points about that, Gethin. But a fundamental thing here that a lot of people may be experiencing is trouble broaching the subject with employees, you know, actually getting employees to to have that conversation with you, open up that dialogue. So I'm really interested to hear what you both have to say on the concept of initiating that conversation about financial well-being and helping people with their financial education? I mean, one of the things that um, that Gaffin talked about through it, there were some fantastic ideas there of different things that employers could think about. But one of the things that sort of resonated throughout that is that 
the opportunities to provide advice as the employer, not directly, but facilitating that advice coming to your employees. There, there are significant opportunities to do that. I think one of the things we have to, to keep in mind is that when people are seeing and hearing lots of different advice in their sort of wider world, you know, they they can switch on a television, read a newspaper. All of that is providing them with commentary about what's happening in the in the financial well-being space. I think sometimes with an employer, there is a degree. There can be not always, but there can be a degree of trust there. So if you're if you're in a situation where you've built really good trust with your employees as an employer. I think there's an enormous sort of opportunity there to be able to facilitate advice coming to people that actually people then trust. Um, you know, we're finding that if we provide some kind of information, some sort of webinars and things, you have to be careful that it's not the employer telling somebody what to do, because I think you're then going into a very difficult area. But there is there is certainly, I think, an advantage in doing it, and there is a degree degree of, of trust there. You know, Gethin made a really good point as well about there is a tendency, particularly in 2024, as we've sort of opened up this year, to sort of look back and say, oh, well, the financial crisis is sort of over. And I think that's partly, again, a bit media-driven. People people listen to things where, you know, we're talking about the mortgage rates coming down in some areas, which is obviously creating great competition and the opportunity for people to, to get better deals, etc. But I think, actually... For an employer, there is there is a danger in all of that, that that's sort of last year's problem and not this year's problem. And I'm seeing a little bit of that starting to creep in, people taking off the agenda a little bit and thinking, well, we dealt with that last year. And actually this year is um, uh, is different. And I, and I don't think it is all that different, actually. I think it's still a problem. And, the, and I guess the last thing, I, this is maybe just taking us off a slight tangent, but... Um, Gethin talked about risky decision making and the and the concerns that we should have about that. Um, and I would add into that sort of pot long-term financial planning. So things like pension as well, because we, we have we have seen a lot of people make some different decisions during the financial crisis about about longer term saving and longer term investment, particularly around pensions. And I know, you know, for some people they they definitely go different routes rather than traditional pension. But I think one of the things that concerns me about these last couple of years, and particularly if this continues, is what long-term impact that has um, on people. Perhaps it, being somebody who's closer to retirement, I probably have that more in my, my mind than somebody who's in their 20s. But I do worry about some of the decisions that people are making. You know, so we've put quite a lot of effort over the last year in just trying to provide more opportunities for people to take advice around pensions and longer term savings as well. I love that point because financial planning in the long term is just absolutely fundamental to to setting yourself up, isn't it, towards the end of your career? Well, well yes, and I think we, you know when when people like myself are in our 20s, sometimes you, you could have a, a feeling that, well, actually, um, I might get to, to my 70s or my 80s and so okay I might be a little bit cash strapped at that point if I don't save money now but actually in reality people are now um, living as we know for for longer and often wanting to live really very active very healthy very 
um, financially secure lives for, for, for a much longer period of time. Um, and where there's a there's definitely been a tendency, um, probably probably through the pandemic, for people to sort of step back and step away from from working earlier. You know, there's quite a lot of research around people doing that sort of mid fifties, um, and and not sort of really considering that and thinking about okay, well that's fine, but how am I going to live the life that I want to live for up to possibly another thirty years if I if I do that. So I think from an employer's point of view, trying to, again, go back to this point of thinking about all of your workforce and all of the, the um, things that they may be considering, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of, of what decisions people are making now that may have really, really long-term impacts as well. And there's there's another key area that I think we really need to delve into a little bit. And that is, you know, we've talked about the employee perspective, the employee situation and what businesses can do to aid employees, both with their financial education, but also, uh, you know, their kind of short and long term decision making. Another fundamental element here, and, and this is kind of fueled, I think, by some of the headlines we've seen recently about some businesses uh, having to make hard decisions, is that you know, financial volatility is inherently affecting organisations as well. So quite a lot of organisations are struggling at the moment, which of course has trickle down effects on employee financial wellness. So I guess this makes communication and transparency incredibly important. I wonder if either of you have something you'd like to say on that. A lot of what we talk about today, when we talk about employee well-being, when we talk about financial well-being uh, as part of that, you know, the evidence now that employee well-being is critical to organizational success, I would say pretty confidently, is so vast and compelling that if you don't take care of the people that work, if you don't support their well-being, your business is not achieving what it should be or the, the potential it has to achieve. You know, the, the evidence is like, is, is very, very thick and heavy now. You know, we've we've had evidence growing and evidence base about workplace well-being growing since the kind of 60s right the way through to, to kind of 2024. And we have some very, very compelling data from millions of individuals working for thousands of organizations across hundreds of studies to show that the more we prioritize and look after the well-being of a people, the better organization is. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. So the more you commit to employee well-being, the more healthy and happy that individuals working for you are, the more they will sell, the more they will innovate, the more they will collaborate. So all these kind of measures of success, regardless of what industry you're in, all get better because of the way that you look after the people that work with you. And then even for people outside or the kind of other stakeholders just outside the business, you see kind of big benefits to doing this as well. So shareholder return is higher. Um, investors are looking to see for this stuff as well. So this elusive S of the SG, the social side of environmental, social and governance, you've got lots of investors now saying, actually, I want to invest in a company that takes care of its people and invests in well-being because I know that's going to be a more successful business in the future. So we're at this point now where we cannot continue to look at things like supporting financial well-being and supporting well-being as a cost to the business. It's an investment in our business. It's not the first thing that should be ticked off when we're looking at cutting costs, because actually the negative impact of us not helping people that work with us can be really, really significant. And even for those businesses that are listening to this thinking, well, we don't do much to support the well-being of our people, yet we're doing pretty well as a business. 
I could say pretty confidently that you're not achieving what you could be achieving if you didn't invest in these things. Um, and I run a group of um, global internal well-being leads, represented some really big organizations like Bupa, Unilever, HSBC, Burberry, and, and many others. And you know these are big businesses that really invest a lot in well-being. They've got dedicated teams and dedicated people. They've got budgets. And those businesses are all frequently listed on kind of FTSE 250 and the Forbes 500 and all these kind of great lists of how successful businesses are. And so I think we really need to start thinking about actually, my view would be when it gets to a difficult economic climate, you look at the, um, the, the advice from people like Bain and Co., and they will start to tell you that actually people are made, made or broken during economic uh, crises. And so those businesses that actually double down and invest more in their people and invest more in their proposition actually weather the storm greater. And they create what they call star organizations, which are the ones that end up actually, when the economic environment gets better, survive it longest. And it's almost a little bit like um, there's this old marketing term like during economic or time, tough times or economic crises, it's the best time to invest in marketing, not actually to cut your marketing down. And I think it's the same for our people. You know, I think the more we invest in our people at a time when we really need them to be on board with us, you know, employee engagement comes alive when people, uh, when our businesses are struggling. You know, we don't notice employee, high employee engagement when the business is going well. But when we really need people to step up, that's when we really notice it. And, and the pandemic gave us a great example of actually your people will step up and help you the more we kind of help them. And those businesses that helped people throughout the pandemic weathered that storm far, far better than others. So we've got a really recent wholesale example of how this happens. And so I think we need to start thinking about well-being as an investment in the future success of our business and not a cost. Um, and, and certainly not the first thing that the budget should be taken away from, which I think still happens, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd agree. I'd agree with all that. I think, Kieran, you you um, you made a really good point when you took, I think you said transparency and it's definitely true that a company that is really struggling from a financial point of view, and there are definitely companies out there, you know, they have to make really difficult decisions about where they spend their money. But I guess I would also question sometimes where they put that the emphasis. So to Gethin's point, if you if you can get your head around the fact that as an employer, there's probably very few things that you could do that would be more important than looking at the well-being of your employees then i think you would focus on on that but but actually it's probably also around how you share the decision making with your employees a little bit so companies in some cases can be incredibly poor at explaining you know why why are they spending money on this particular thing you know why have they decided this year that they can afford three percent on the salary bill for example why is it three percent and you know what other things are they having to sort of consider in the background i think sometimes sharing that with people and being really honest you know we've over the last four or five years We've always said to people that each year at EMIS, we'll try to improve um, something around our, our benefits or our well-being, but we will we will do it subject to how much we're able to um, afford 
to, to do each each year. And so every year that it's varied slightly, some years it's been better than others. And But we've been able to kind of track it directly back to how successful we've been in that year as a business. And, and therefore, if we have been, we've said, okay, in that case, we we're able to put a little bit more here and a bit more there. And although that's sometimes quite difficult because people are saying, well, why can't you do this now? Why have we got to wait? Actually, if you look back over that period of time, there's no question that in every year people's overall financial um, security has, has been improved by the things the things that we've done. But along the way, there's been some quite difficult times where we've had to be quite honest and say, actually, you know, we want to improve, you know, pensions are a good example. We want to improve what we contribute to our pension scheme. Um, but actually this year, and we did this in 23, this year we're not going to do that because we're actually going to provide slightly more in terms of salary increases because we think that's what people are needing this year. Now, that's not just what we've decided as an employer. We will do that based on, you know, we have, we run surveys and we have um, uh, employee forums and things. So we really try to understand what is it this particular year. And the more that you can have that, open dialogue with your employees. I guess that, you know, I know that's harder, the bigger the organization, the harder it is to do that. But having some kind of open dialogue, which says, you know, you asked us to think about this, we're thinking about it, we might not be able to do it all this year, but we'll try and do what we can. It's that ongoing piece that I think creates the, the trust that we've talked about, which is then I think a really important underpinning to everything that you, that you want to achieve in, in the business. Incredible. Well, thank you both so much. It has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Uh, very, very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to once again say a massive, massive thank you to Jackie and Gethin for being part of this podcast and of course to Zealous for sponsoring a short series that we're going to be putting together over the next couple of weeks and obviously providing us with the opportunity to speak to these incredible experts. So thank you very, very much to Zealous and to our audience. We look forward to seeing you again next week.